This might possibly be the funniest interview we've ever had on this show. As it turns out, physiological, sociological, and psychological factors influence our investing choices in ways you might not expect. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, behavioral finance expert Dr. Daniel Crosby talks about the findings in his latest book, The Behavioral Investor. Plus, Joe and Big Al answer your questions about converting your SEP IRA to a Roth, stretch Roth IRAs and required minimum distributions, donating RMDs to charity, ACA subsidies and Roth conversions, and strategies for reducing the tax burden on 1099 income to zero. But first, grab a big gulp and settle in. Here with our guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby, are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Alan, it's that time of the show. It is. We got a guest, and I'm excited. Yeah, he's one of my favorite guests. He's right. been on the show several times. Right. And he's a doctor. Yes. And that already <laughs> classes up our show, doesn't it? <laughs> Dr. Daniel Crosby, how are you, my friend? I'm laughing because you called me a doctor and no one ever does. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for respecting me in ways my parents still don't. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh they, don't, they don't call you doctor? No. Uh, much, to my, much to my dismay. <laughs> you know, um, the last time you were on, uh, we were talking about the laws of wealth, which was a phenomenal... Oh, how many books now? Is this like your fifth book? Uh, <laughs> it or- is. It is my fifth book, but one of them is a children's book. Are we going to count a children's book? <laughs> yes, we are. Yes. And that's one of my favorite books. That's Isn't the one, like, we, that's you, one we understand. Yeah, you're not as smart as you think you are, or, or, or is what? It's something kind of with a little. Um, no, it's more. It's more depressing. Yes. I have, so I have a I have a book called "You're Not That Great," and then I, that's <laughs> that's for adults. Then I have a children's book called "Everyone You Love Will Die." Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. <laughs> Uh, well, that is true. Too uh, optimistic. Y- yes. Every well, let's talk about everyone that you love will die. <laughs> 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 let's just dive in right there. Or right, well, so okay. The last book. I don't know how much more behavioral finance can you fit in <laughs> another book. In this one, you you did it. I'm proud of you. First of all. <laughs> Uh, but second of all, so did you just want to take even a deeper dive into the world of our minds and how bad we are with money? I, I wanted to be done with it, frankly. So, this is, so now, so now I am. I say in the first line of the book that you know the aim of this book is to write the most comprehensive guide to investor psychology that's around. And um, one of my reviewers on Amazon doesn't think I did that, but I think I did. And uh, I'm super proud of it. And I can say, I will say here for the first time, I will never, I will never write another book about investor psychology because I think you know a lot of truths about human behavior just don't change. Like, so I think there's a lot of great stuff in this book. And uh, you know, now I'm going to write more depressing kids' books. Or <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, well, tell our listeners a little bit about. What is, I guess, the difference between your previous books in this one? So the last book was called The Laws of Wealth, and it was about sort of the Ten Commandments of Investor Behavior. You know, if you want to get the most out of your investments, these are the ten things that you need to do. So it's a great sort of beginner's guide. Uh, This book is a deeper dive on the sociology, the physiology, the psychology, the neurology of how we make choices about money. 
So we dig into society, we dig into your brain, you know, we dig into your, your body, all of this to try and understand and, you know, spoiler alert, everything around you, everything about who you are and the world you live in primes you to do dumb things with money. So we try and identify why you're wired that way and then, and then help you make better choices. Well, let's dive in. What are some of the things you found? What? Why? Why are we so bad with money? You know, we really should mention this book is called The Behavioral Investor. We haven't gotten yeah. that in yet. Well, don't worry about it, Andy. <laughs> can we turn her mic off? <laughs> sure. I mean, no. Give her a leash. All she does is now she Wait. wants to run the show. Yeah, it's impossible. I mean, it's already on. We can't put it back in Pandora's box. I know it's out. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that, Doctor. We have a we have some behavioral issues here in this podcast. <laughs> Sorry about it. She's helping me. She's helping me slang books. That was wonderful. So he's he's, he's so, for he's on her side. That's right. So yeah, the behavioral investor just named the best investment book of the year by the Axiom Business Book Awards. So take that three star Amazon. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not mad about it, but one of the, one of the, you know, we'll start with just the the world that we live in. So, you know, the very first chapter in the book talks about how we are wired as a human species to think communally. So, our ability to think in terms of what will my neighbor think about this, what will you know my best friend or my parents or my spouse think about this is the very thing that separates us from the the rest of the animal kingdom. You know, our ability to think in relational and cooperative terms is where we are different from any other animal. Uh, But I also cite examples of how this very literally leads us to think in packs and understanding the opinions of those who are close to us can actually change the way that you see the way that you think, the way that you interpret space and time. So I go into that in, in the book. But other people's opinion can physically alter the way that you move through the world. And that's not true of a, of a deer or a penguin, right? Uh, and so this allows us to build great churches and great uh, you know, states and, and nations. But it also means that when it comes to investing, we are running as a herd. And that's a profoundly, uh, profoundly damaging thing. So one of the themes that runs throughout the book is things that have served us well evolutionarily or in other contexts are very bad for us as investors. And that's just one easy example. A question for you. I would say over the last 10 years, there's been a lot more research. There's been a lot more great books published like yours. On this topic of getting into the psyche, getting into our brains to figure out why we are not very good with money. And I think everyone over the last hundred years, it's like, okay, well, we should buy low, sell high. And I think that's very common investment knowledge, but no one else can do that. But have you seen improvements in the studies that I, I seen, I haven't seen any improvements. If you look at Dalbar, if you look at the outflows and inflows of certain funds when markets react. Even though with all this work that's being done, what have you seen? Have you seen any improvements in the average retail investor on how they're dealing with their money? Are you saying that my life's work has been a waste? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> no, it, it means we've we, – no, i got a different take. It's like this is why we need it, but then it's like how do we apply this, right? And I, and I know that you try to do that in your book, but I think that, that's why a book like this is needed. No, let me tell you why my life's work has been a waste. So in the, ni- <laughs> in the 1990s, we started putting nutrition labels on everything, right? You know when you go to the store, you know, with the chicken or the crackers or whatever, you know how much fat is in it, how much sodium, calories, whatever, right? So since that time, 
America has gotten twice as fat. Like the percentage of people who are obese has doubled and, and the rate of morbid obesity has tripled. And so you would think that with better knowledge comes better outcomes, but there's actually very little to suggest that. And so I think that what investors need is a three-legged stool, right? Like part of it is knowledge, part of it is books like mine, but that won't get you very far, candidly. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And the other two things that we need is good environments and good relationships. So let me say a little bit more about that. You know, if you read my book, and you're nodding your head throughout, and you go, you know what, this guy makes a lot of sense, and then you go watch CNBC for four hours, and you've got you know, people screaming at you that the sky is falling, and you know, the economy's gonna crumble, and some hedge fund manager says that it's Great Recession 2.0 right around the corner, the lessons of my book are gonna be out the door pretty quickly. So not only do we need good knowledge, we need to surround ourselves with the type of voices and the type of context that is conducive to good investment performance, which is candidly like, like ignoring it mostly. And then finally, we need good relationships that will give us just-in-time advice, right? So we need people who, in a moment of panic, because even if you've done your best to learn the right lessons, even if you've done your best to surround yourself with the right kind of voices, you're still going to freak out. Like markets are volatile. There's still going to be times when you want to do the wrong thing. And you need someone, a coach or a, a counselor or an advisor who in a moment of panic will go, this was not the plan. Stay the course. Let's stick with it. So uh, yeah, books like mine don't do nothing, but they're really just a small part of the puzzle. You know what I thought was really cool, what you wrote about in your last book? If people understood a little bit more of exactly what they're investing in, would help them because let's say if I was investing in a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund or something like that and all of the different companies I had a huge passion for that I was really strongly emotionally tied to these particular companies for some reason or another and if I see that mutual fund or that stock or whatever go down I'm not necessarily going to sell it because I, I have a little bit more emotional attachment to it where that, that would probably be good. Because I think with people with individual stocks, even though I don't believe that individuals should own individual stocks, but I bet they have better behavior when it comes to buying and selling, even though they're buying maybe not the right types of stocks or having too much concentrated risk within a particular issue. But I, I thought the concept of saying, hey, you know, if I'm really supportive of a certain organization or a certain foundation or a certain charity or something like that, and all of these different companies that are, are within that, I might be less likely to make, a, a, I guess, a trigger reaction when, when things happen. So when it comes to individual stocks, I think it amplifies the tendency in good and bad ways. Like it amplifies the tendency for you to stay the course, maybe if it's a really cherished company or really cherished business. But I think it also exacerbates some other behavioral problems. Like if you love a company, you're not likely to be as critical of it. You're not likely to do as much due diligence or manage risk as well because it's sort of a darling company. So I think it amplifies things in both directions that way. Where I'm really high, though, is on values-based and sort of socially responsible investing, which this is an unpopular opinion and my mailbag will blow up after this. I don't think it does much good in the world. Like I don't think that you know me with my $10,000 divesting of oil stocks, like I don't think that makes the world an appreciably greener place. I think 
someone with less values that way comes and snaps it up at a discount. But what I do think that it helps a lot with is the behavioral stuff, because, you know, now you can invest in, you know, gun free funds and green funds and Republican funds and, you know, Democrat funds and women's leadership funds. And, you know, I think if you are someone who cares a lot about gender equity in the workplace, you are much more likely to stay the course with your women's leadership fund uh, than you are with your, you know, S&P 500, which is kind of toothless. So yeah, I think that values-based investing has a lot of behavioral upside and will give you the diversification that you need. For a transcript of this interview, to listen to our previous interview with Dr. Daniel Crosby, for our other interviews and transcripts, and to subscribe to this podcast and share it with everyone you know, visit the show notes for today's episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Once you're subscribed to YMYW, new episodes will automatically download to your device for free, and you can listen whenever you choose. Next week on YMYW, Tanya Hester from the Our Next Life Financial Independence blog shares her story of retiring at the age of 30. 38 and creating a work optional life. Subscribe at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Now more with Dr. Daniel Crosby. When uh, you wrote your latest book and kind of putting it all together, were there any surprises or, or studies or things that you thought, wow, this seems contrary to what I thought He's I was going to find Alan, out? No, nothing surprises him. <laughs> no, no here's, the, here's the worst part about becoming a doctor is you feel stupider on the day you graduate. <laughs> Because you just learned all the shades of gray. Like you go right. in, like, yeah, I got this, you know, and then you come out and you're like, oh my gosh, like I know right. nothing. So um, here's one funny study. I don't know how consequential it is, but I thought it was funny. You know, in the chapters about the body, I learned that people who need to pee have exceptional investment performance. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, we do a much better show when we need to pee. <laughs> right. I'm sitting here with a big gulp. Just crushing, <laughs> frankly. Perfect. Uh, so what, what what they found was something called inhibitory spillover. So basically, the same restraint that you're using to hold it uh, <laughs> extends extends to you being able to control your your temper and hold it, as it were, in investment markets. So yeah, they did did all these studies on you know people in different physiological states. People who were hungry were horrible investors. People who needed to pee were excellent investors. So um, stay. So, stay so in, in volatile markets, go get a big gulp and have one get filled all the time. Hold it until you turn purple. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Well, that's that's good advice. Well, this interview is going places I never expected. <laughs> um, going back maybe to the basics. If you look at what are some of the your favorite behavioral issues that we have when it comes to money? I mean, you're the expert in all of this, and I still think that people don't really realize that we have some of these biases and tendencies when it comes to our money because maybe it's hard to look at each other, ourselves in the mirror and find faults. What are some of your favorites when it comes to why we are such really bad investors? So first of all, I think you make a really important point there, which is I get mail all the time from people who are like, you know, hey, I read your book and it's totally my neighbor. You know, it's totally like this part totally reminded me of my spouse. And, you know, I have to write back and go, I wrote the book for you. Read it again. <laughs> you know, because, because, you know, you don't you don't read these type of books with a finger pointing and blaming mindset. You look at it to try and better yourself and turn that introspective lens back on yourself. So I think that's a really important place to start. So in the book, I outline four sort of 
primary error tendencies. You know, there's like 200 and something different sort of small behavioral biases we can fall prey to. But when I examined that literature, I found that they consistently fell into like one of four camps. So those four camps were ego, which is this tendency to be overconfident, emotion, which is, you know, just what it sounds like, making emotional and not rational decisions. Uh, The third is attention, uh, which is our tendency to evaluate the likelihood of something not based on how probabilistic it is, but on how uh, sort of sensational it is. My favorite, my favorite example there is that you know many many more people die taking selfies than in shark attacks. But you know, no, no. <laughs> that doesn't get the press though. <laughs> doesn't get the press, right? So like you know, if two people a year die in shark attacks, it's the front page of Time magazine. But you know, the person at Disney World who was taking a selfie and stumbled into the road and got you know hit by a car, doesn't make the news. And we do this in investing too. We're always worried about when's the next depression and the great recession and what's the next Bitcoin or pot stocks or whatever. And we're missing you know a hundred more impactful things along the way. And then the last one is conservatism, which is our tendency to confuse what we know with what's good or what's safe. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So one of the biggest examples of this comes from uh, what's called home bias, which is, you know, people think the stocks of their country are more knowable, more more safe, more desirable. And in the U.S., we're such a large economy. We're about 52 percent of all the equity markets in the world. We had about a 52 percent share of that. And so if people are over concentrated in the U.S., it's not great, but it's not killer. But what we find is that people in places like Greece Uh, You know, you go to Greece or Finland or Canada or somewhere and people have an 85% allocation to Greek stocks. Well, you know, you're overweight olive oil and tourism there and not much else. So people tend to get wrapped up in this idea that what they know is what's safe. And we even see that within the U.S. People in the Midwest are way over allocated to agricultural stuff and people in the Northeast are way over allocated to financials. And so, yeah, people just really confuse I've heard of this, so I should invest in it, and it's pretty damaging. Right. It's like you know, people in St. Louis have Budweiser, or people in Atlanta own Coca-Cola. You know, People here in San Diego own Qualcomm. You know, Peter Lynch once said, buy what you know, but I think that could have been some of the worst advice possible. Well, I say in the book, I mean, I specifically call out Peter Lynch, who's, you know— Got, got a lot more money than me, so I don't think he's. I think he's super worried about it. But um, you know, I say, look, this is some of the worst advice you could ever fall prey to because you know I live here in Atlanta, and everyone around here is loaded up on Aflac and Coke and UPS, and you know all the local companies. And if you think about it, a lot of times that's your job. You know, your house is in that location. So if Aflac or UPS or Coke goes under, your housing prices, you know, you're going to lose your job. Your house value is going to diminish, and now you've got stock too. So you you know you're triple concentrated in this. So yeah, if anything, you want to run the other way from stuff that you know, and you want to diversify into things that you don't have a lot of exposure to. Because if you live in Atlanta, like I mean, I, even if I never owned one share of Coke stock, like my home value is profoundly impacted by Coke's performance. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Crosby. His latest book is The Behavioral Investor. Hey, I want to talk about your podcast. What yeah. because you were on our podcast for the last several years, you're like, hey, what you know, I want to start my own. Yeah, you you <laughs> how how do I say this in a way that it's never been said before? You're the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm a big fan. Um, so I have, I have a podcast called Standard Deviations, which is a lot more serious-minded than this one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, half the time, Al and I show up drunk, so it's... Um, we, uh, yeah. we, get, <laughs> we get accused of talking in circles. That's why we have to have you know very yeah. smart people on like right. you, my friend. <laughs> uh, Standard Deviations, it's an awesome podcast, by the way. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah, thank you. I've I've uh, started it kind of as a lark, and it's turned into a thing. So what do you know? Thank you. Thanks for the shout-out. Yes. Everyone, get his book. It's called The Behavioral Investor. It's now available on Amazon or any else. I, I would imagine where, where finer books are sold. Anywhere fine books are sold. If, if they don't have it, you are in a place of ill repute and run. <laughs> run to the door. Hey, where else can people get more information on you, Dan? Yeah, um, uh, Twitter at Daniel Crosby. Check out the podcast Standard Deviations. Check out the books, and uh, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. So yeah, find me any of those places. How's your firm doing? Well, I sold it, and I joined another firm. So I'm the chief behavioral officer at Brinker Capital, based just outside of Philly. There, so just happened a couple months ago. So real good, loving life there. Well, congratulations, my friend. It's always such a pleasure having you on, and I know you're a busy guy, so I really appreciate it. This was a blast. Thanks all. Visit the show notes for today's podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com for links to Dr. Daniel Crosby on LinkedIn and Twitter and to buy his latest book, The Behavioral Investor. And hey, is your retirement going to get punched in the face? Find out how to avoid a retirement TKO this week on the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Watch online at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the Quick Retirement Calculator Guide for free while you're there. Be sure to subscribe to Your Money, Your Wealth on YouTube to catch new episodes on Sundays. Now it's time to get to your money questions. If you want to email us or send us a voice recording of your question to be answered on the podcast, just visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and scroll down to Ask Joe and Al on air. Voila. We got Susan from San Diego. Hi, Joe and Al. My husband has money in a SEP IRA that he was able to save when he had a small business years ago. He no longer has that business, just his regular income, which is reported on a W-2. As he cannot add any more savings to the SEP, he was thinking about converting this to a Roth IRA this year. He will have to pay the taxes on the conversion, but is it possible for him to convert straight from his SEP IRA to his Roth? Uh, Susan, yes. The answer is yes. Absolutely. But you would want to be careful, I guess. I mean, what's the balance of the SEP IRA? Yeah. Be, what it, tax bracket are you sure. in? Sure. I mean, you got to ask a few more questions. And I think that's a great question because a lot of times when you're reading or listening to pundits that talk about you can do an IRA to Roth conversion, you could also do a SEP IRA to a Roth conversion. You can do a 401k balance to a Roth conversion. You can sort of take any retirement account, retirement and, account convert and convert it to a Roth IRA. It. Yeah. Right. And now it used to be that you could recharacterize if you converted too much. You had to the filing date of your tax return and you had to recharacterize generally back to an IRA regardless of where it came from. But those rules are, are, are gone. So it's, it's very simple. Whatever account you have, it's a SEP IRA. You can convert that directly to a Roth. The question is, should you? 
right? It, what's your tax bracket now? What's it going to be in the future? Maybe you're in a maybe you're in a low bracket, maybe you're in a high bracket. The lower the bracket you are, the more likely you're going to want to do a conversion now or t- while tax rates are lower. Maybe you want to fill up your current bracket, so maybe you don't convert it all. Maybe you convert part of it. So those are things you got to look at. Yeah. So. Um Again, to refresh our listeners on what the hell uh, heck a conversion is, is taking money. So a SEP IRA is just a self-employment pension plan. So uh, her husband, Susan's husband, uh, was self-employed and set up a retirement plan for his small business. And so it was a pre-tax plan. So he got the tax deduction for money going into the SEP. The money grows tax deferred. And then when he would pull the money out, it's going to be taxed at ordinary income rates. Uh, Susan is a big fan of the show, and so she's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe it might make sense for him or us to um, have tax-free money in retirement. So strategies that we've talked about in the past is taking retirement accounts, any accounts for that matter, um, and moving some of that or all of it into a Roth. The reason why you would want to do that is that all future growth of that investment will grow 100% tax-free. So you convert $10,000, that 10000 grows to $15,000. let us say you need to pull a, a few thousand out to live on, that would be 100% tax-free for you as long as you qualified for a tax-free distribution, and that just means you have to be over 59 and a half or the Roth needs to be open for five years or longer. So what we look at and what we talk about is that, yeah, you know, tax rates are a little bit lower now. We have the tax reform, so marginal rates have dropped. And so it could be a really good strategy for a lot of people to look at. So looking at your tax return is going to determine how much that you convert, right? Yeah, you bet. And 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 so what we're talking about, like, for example, married couple, the 24% tax bracket goes all the way up to about $320,000, $321,000 of taxable income for 2019. Realize when you do a Roth conversion... It's you have to do it in the year, the tax year that you're in. In other words, it's not like a contribution where you can do it April 15th. You have to do it by year end. So now we're talking 2019. And so for a lot of folks, it's like, well, this is a lower bracket now than I'm going to be in in retirement because the old tax rates are coming back and alternative minimum tax will be a, a bigger factor when it comes back. And so why not? And and for for single, that 24% bracket goes to about 160000 So that's pretty good to take a look at that. I think virtually everyone listening should be considering it. Now, whether they should do it or not is based upon their own circumstances. And she goes on to write, is that it would be very beneficial for your listeners as you highly recommend everyone having a Roth IRA. Susan, we do not highly recommend anything on this show. Uh, we share ideas. We do not give advice. True. Um, that's compliance. Uh, thank you for all the great information you share. Okay. Um, so she wants to learn a little bit about a stretch Roth IRA. So let's say that her husband then converts the SEP IRA to a Roth IRA, and then the Roth IRA is growing tax-free, and the husband dies. What happens to that money? So a few things can happen. Let's say Susan's still living. She could keep it in the deceased husband's name, and she has full access to the money like it's her own because she's the beneficiary, as long as she's the beneficiary on the account. So she could keep it in his name, and let's say Susan's under 59 and a half, she can have full access to the dollars. 
that's the only real reason why you would want to keep it in a deceased spouse name is that if you're under 59 and a half and you need access to it, because if you are a beneficial owner of a retirement account, you have access to those dollars without that 10% penalty. Right. So it would still be tax-free to you, Susan, as long as that account was open for five years. If it wasn't, you would still have to wait for the five-year clock to get any type of interest out of that account. Maybe you're wondering what happens to that account at both of your spouses in, let's say, you have a, a son or daughter that is going to be the beneficiary of that account. So if it's after the second spouse passes, how it works is that it would still be in the deceased's name. So to make this easy, let's say her husband passes, Susan puts the Roth IRA into her own Roth IRA, which she can because they're spouses. Now she passes away and it goes to her child. Now the child cannot put the Roth IRA into the child's account. It will blow the thing up. It would unravel everything and 100% of that Roth IRA would be distributed. Then any future growth of those dollars are going to be taxed, either a capital gains, interest, or dividend. So you don't want to do that, especially if you're converting it and paying tax. You want to have it parlayed tax deferred as long as you possibly can. So you pass, Susan. It goes to your heir. And so what happens then is that it still stays in your name, though. That's the biggest tricky part about all retirement accounts going to the next generation or any non-spouse beneficiary, I should say. So it's saying Susan's name for the benefit of her issue. All right? Which is kid. Which is child. <laughs> or any beneficiary. Well, he's probably... He's probably caused some issues in Susan's life. I'm just, yeah, just clarify. <laughs> Thank you, you. You got legal on it. <laughs> Thank you. I read a book yeah. over the weekend. Apparently. So, so then, but here's the catch. With Roth IRAs, right, you don't have to take a required distribution, right? If it's, you, if it's your account, you do not have to take a required distribution. What that is is that it's a mandatory distribution age 70 and a half. Thereafter, you have to start taking money out of the account. In a Roth IRA, you do not, as long as you're the owner of the account. Once you pass away, though, you're still the owner of the account. The beneficiary is a beneficial owner. So it's not a true ownership of that account. So that non-spouse beneficiary will have to take a required distribution from the Roth IRA based on that child's life expectancy. The, the distribution's tax-free, but they do have to pull money out of the account based on their life expectancy. Yeah, I think and that, that bears a little repeating. So it's still tax-free. When you do the Roth conversion, what's in that account is tax-free for whoever inherits it. But if, if it's a non-spouse, if it's a child or, or nephew or friend, a non-spouse, then they have to take a required distribution. They could be eight years old right. and still have to take a distribution based upon the eight-year-old's life expectancy. And the reason is because the IRS doesn't want these accounts to grow generation after generation tax-free. And so in recent tax law uh, that did not pass is that what they want to do is eliminate basically the stretch IRA. Right. And and we thought they would because both the Democrats and the Republicans wanted that. So they were saying, no, this is a retirement account. We want you to distribute in your lifetime because it's for your retirement, not your child's retirement. That's right. Or if you die early, it's got to come out in five years. Right. Get the whole thing out. We want our tax money. Let's recycle the money. Right. Um, and so what the, the la latest proposal was is that you could pass about 450000 bucks, 400 or 450 um, That would be able to stretch 
everything else has to come out within five years or that year. Yeah, and that was the proposal, which did not pass. Right, so, it so didn't pass, so we still have the stretch. We still have the full stretch on regular IRAs and Roth IRAs. And, I mean, there's been rumors of, all right, well, maybe we can you can pass a million dollars, maybe it's 200 maybe it's four, whatever. So uh, stay tuned on that. Uh, but just know that if you ever inherit a retirement account, you have to take a required distribution. We just had um, an individual that came in, um, inherited an account, never took a required distribution for like three or four years. And then th- they were with a broker. And we're like, well, what did you tell the broker? And then they're like, oh, yeah, they're going to run some numbers for me. And I was like, well, when did you inherit this thing? Well, four or five years ago. And you've never taken an RMD? I looked at the, you know, the, the tax return, nothing. Right. So that's a 50% tax penalty each year that you don't take the RMD. When you're looking at beneficial IRAs, it's completely different than a regular IRA. Most custodians, right, if you've got your money at TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, Merrill Lynch, whatever, they usually will send you a letter, right, and saying, hey, we have your birth date here. You're 75 years old. You need to take money out of this account. And here's the amount, roughly, that you need to take out. And they're just going to give you the number on the accounts that they hold. So maybe you have an account at Fidelity, you have an account at TD Ameritrade and Charles Schwab. Maybe Charles Schwab doesn't do it or forgets it, and then you get the number from TD Ameritrade and you only take that RMD. Well, you're going to be short the RMD. Be careful with that. But non-spouse beneficiaries... A lot of them don't even calculate that. They don't even know. They, they're like, screw it, right? I don't even know how much money, you know, that's on you. You are the taxpayer. You are responsible for taking the required distribution. The custodian is not. They're doing it as a service, as a, as, you know, a customer service perk. Um, the IRS does not mandate, you know, fidelity to send you on a statement for, for what I know. Right. So. Wow, you got pretty fired up. Well, you know, I just don't want people to lose money. Okay. I got a big heart, Al. <laughs> Apparently. You got a big wallet. I got a big heart. <laughs> Carrie from San Diego. She's donating her RMD directly to charity. And she, <clears throat> she would like to know, can you split the RMD to multiple charities or a charity in yourself? Assuming the management would do that. So I'm assuming, Alan, she's, let's say she's got a $20,000 required minimum distribution. Uh, there's something that's called a QCD. Right. A qualified charitable donation. And what that law allows us to do is that if you are 70 and a half or older and you are now taking your required minimum distributions, you are um, able to give all or part of that required minimum distribution directly to a charity. It never shows up on your tax return, so there's no taxable event. A lot of times people are taking these RMDs and reinvesting them and paying taxes on it, where this would eliminate the tax altogether, and it's a pretty slick way to give to a charity and also get a pretty good tax benefit. Going back to Carrie's question, she's asking, hey, can I give to multiple charities, or maybe can I split it up with multiple charities and take some of the RMD for myself? Yeah, and the answer is yes. So the way that you do that, so the money has to go directly from your IRA, so the custodian has to actually write the check directly to the charity, but it can be as many charities if you want. You have 10 charities, you could do this 10 times, and you could still take more yourself. In fact, the, the, and something that people don't know is you can actually do more than your required minimum distribution. You 
you can actually do $100,000 if you want to. That would be a big donation, but you could do that. So yeah, there's a lot of flexibility, but the key here is that you cannot receive the money yourself and then give it to charity. If you do, then it's just like any other charitable donation. You write it off on your taxes. But Joe, a lot of people are not going to be able to itemize their deductions anymore because it's a much higher standard deduction. So doing it this way, you know, since you didn't get any donation deduction benefit anyway, doing it this way, you're going to save taxes because it doesn't show up as income on your return. For more information about required minimum distributions, qualified charitable distributions, Roth IRAs, and many, many more financial topics that matter to you, check the show notes for today's episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We've got white papers, educational videos, and tons of other free resources, including video answers to some of these money questions. Send us your questions to be featured in the podcast. Just visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and scroll down to Ask Joe and Al on the air. Todd uh, from San Diego. Let's see. Joe and Al, I was first introduced to the mysteries of IRA conversions at one of Joe's seminars. Uh, It's not a seminar, Todd. It's called a class. And that was San... um, I remember Todd. You remember Todd? Oh, of course I remember Todd. How can you not remember Todd? Sure. Um, Yeah, Um, it was Maricosta College, Oceanside. Okay. Yep. uh, Was it my brother? No, it wasn't your brother. Named Todd. Uh, Since then... You um, then have heard you guys talk about converting traditional IRAs to Roth frequently. I look at it near the end of every year. I know you disagree on whether one should convert if one is in the 12% bracket. Over uh, the 12% bracket. Uh, over the 12% bracket, still under the 22% tax bracket. But something new to consider, I haven't heard you mention. If one is in the 10 and 12% brackets, one is likely to qualify for the... ACA subsidies, so that's Obamacare. That is, I like to call it the Affordable Care Act, Alan. Yes, I know. That means you're more politically correct than I. That means you do not only need to be aware of the top edge of the tax bracket, but also need to keep the various thresholds of ACA subsidies in mind. Converting to fill up the 22% bracket may reduce your subsidies, and depending on how much that is, could easily kill any potential tax benefits. Uh, Todd continues, by the way, through discipline investing for most of my life, I was able to retire at age 55. My wife and I met with Joe a couple years ago to discuss my plan. He saw my retirement spreadsheet and immediately asked if I was an engineer and introduced me to Monte Carlo analysis. Many thanks. We should know that so far the plan is working out very well, and the Marnie Carlo I did on it showed 94% chance of success. Many thanks. Well, Todd, I'm very proud of you, buddy. Yeah, he had multiple spreadsheets. Yeah. There was a lot of flaws in the spreadsheet. Were there? I thought so. Okay, but I, did, didn't. I didn't see it. Uh, but no, it was very well done. But the, the point... You're just giving Todd a hard time. Yeah, the point being made is absolutely correct. Absolutely. And so here's the deal is before age 65, when you qualify for Medicare, let's say you retire, and so you're paying for your own health insurance, or maybe you have an employer that doesn't have health insurance, so you have to buy your own insurance. And generally, it's for people that are retired, and they've got savings. they got savings to live off of, so they can keep their actually current income pretty low. And if your current income is low and they have this, these poverty levels, 100% poverty all the way up to 400% poverty level, if you're below those levels, 
then you get a subsidy on your health insurance. In other words, you don't you get you get a tax credit for being in a low income bracket, and that's absolutely true. And, and when you're looking at Roth conversions, and you're subject to this insurance where you're getting these subsidies, you absolutely want to look at that. And I would go so far to say is for those that are getting the subsidies in the 12% bracket and they're in the poverty range, when if you do any Roth conversions at all, you certainly want to stay below the 400% level. Otherwise, your effective tax rate is not 12%. It's more like 25 or more. Yeah, but here's the deal. You know where I, where, where I stand. I know this. where you stand. But that's the truth. Yes, we have clients that have millions of dollars. I know, and you don't like it. I don't. I, I well, that's the second part of it. It's this. like, okay, well, here, I got four million bucks, and I'm in we're able to create income from them, um, from their non this, non qualified account by doing tax lot harvesting, tax efficient, so very little shows up. Yeah. And then they got another couple million bucks sitting in their IRAs. Sure. And it's like, okay, no, let's do some conversions. Let's get this thing out because it's gonna blow you up long term. No, I like my subsidies. This subsidy is not meant for you. You have $4 million. Right. Nevertheless. We- it's the law. I get it. But it's just like, come on. You're tripping over you know, dollars to pick up pennies. Right. Run the numbers. So you get a subsidy for one year. You save a couple of thousand dollars. I guarantee you, right, if you do the numbers correctly, and if you can get money, I mean, because you're still, you got to add that back into your effective tax rate. And so- Right? Let's say you're in the 12% yes. tax break, 22% tax break, but you lose that subsidy. So you add that cost back in as a tax, right? and then you divide that into what your income is to yeah. find out what your true effective tax rate is with the loss of subsidy. Yeah, that, that's how you do it. But one correction, you cannot guarantee. Uh, did I say guarantee? Yeah, it's impossible to guarantee that. I didn't guarantee anything. I just guarantee that that <laughs> pisses me off. <laughs> Anyway, I get it. It wasn't intended for you. But nevertheless, your statement is correct, Todd. <laughs> it's why we haven't talked about it, because we, we always have this discussion. Right. Because you, if, if you look at it, I believe, personally, because I've run the numbers, you've run the numbers, yeah. you've seen the numbers. Sure. If you lose a subsidy for one year and you can get $100,000 converted at a fairly low rate, I mean, these rates are not going to be here forever. True. These are extremely low tax rates. And if you have a lot of money, and I'm not saying what, I don't I don't remember exactly what Todd, I'm not saying that Todd is the one with the, yeah, the millions of dollars. I understand. Uh, you know, Todd might only have $50,000. I don't know, right? I don't know Todd. I just remember him from the class. Got it. So it was a, not a workshop, Todd. It was a class. So, but congratulations to Todd. Okay, we got Jay Paradise. Jay in Paradise, California. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to purchase a dump truck cash and work the next year, six days a week, 11 hours a day, 160 bucks an hour. I'm also a campfire evacuee. Looks like 500 plus K a year for the next two years. How can I get my 1099 down to zero? Uh, okay, well, that would be good, and $500,000 plus a year to get your taxes and keep it all he wants to. Jay, can I buy real estate related to trucking and work? After 200 k in Cal or Fed, I believe the rate goes to 50%. We want to pay next to nothing. Does an LLC or nonprofit help? Hmm. All right, Jay, I'll, I'll start with this one. So first of all, Jay, I'm um, sorry about the, the campfire 
um, up there in paradise. I mean, hopefully uh, didn't lose his home. Right. Um, but um, and it, so he bought a dump truck, Al. Yeah. And he's going to make $500,000 a year. Zero him out, please. Yeah. Okay. So that's difficult to say the least, but <laughs> let's let's try. <laughs> so right off the bat, when you have earned income, this is earned income. So you're going to have to pay income taxes and self-employment taxes on that. And so that tax rate, especially if you're in California, which you say you are, paradise, uh, the tax rate probably is close to 50%. In some cases, it could be even a little bit higher, but that's probably a good range. You're not going to pay 50% on all your income because you've got lower brackets to work up to, but your highest brackets will probably be close to 50%. So how do you, how do you get rid of that? Well, you can take a part of your dump truck and you can write that off each year. You might be able to take Section 179. It depends if it's, it's a weird rule, but if it's over 25000 um Pounds, then you get a you, you get a um, better tax deduction. So be aware of that. Any other deductions, like for example, driving to and from the job sites, things of that supplies, but that's not going to be worth five hundred thousand dollars. So you're going to basically take that five hundred thousand dollars down to four fifty or four seventy five. I, I don't know how much you can come up with in deductions. So you still have to pay taxes on that. Now the next question is: Are there other deductions? Well, you can buy can, a five hundred thousand dollar dump truck. Uh, wow, you, you, you could, if, <laughs> but if you're trying to if you're <laughs> trying to better yourself, I mean, maybe you get the best dump truck ever. Right. Well, th- that's his job, isn't it? A dump truck driver for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then maybe you sell it, and but then you got to pay tax on all that gain. <laughs> but let me let me just uh, sort of try to take this question. So, what else you could do <laughs> to create deductions? is the normal things are home mortgage and charity and, and things of that sort, property taxes. What some people do over and above that is they buy real estate, but this is investment real estate. This is, this is real estate that you would buy, like let's say a big apartment building, and maybe you buy a million dollar building, and you get a deduction probably in the, in the neighborhood of I'm going to say $25,000 from depreciation, just as a quick guess. So, But he's asking, can I buy real estate related to trucking and work? No. No, you can't. Well, if you, And he won't even be able to write off. If it's related to his work, that would be a business expense. But if he buys a million-dollar apartment building as an investment, he still can't write that off because he can write off maybe the income because of depreciation. But five hundred grand, he's, he's going to... Right. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is, if he buys real estate, whether I mean, if he buys a, a a piece of commercial property that he houses his business in, then you you can't just write off the property. You get to write off a piece of it. Commercial property is over 39 years. A residential property is over 27 and a half. That's that's how much you can write off. So a million dollar property on a residential would give you probably somewhere around a $25,000 deduction because you got to factor in the land portion, which is not a write-off. So to get a $250,000 deduction in that example, you would need a $10 million of real estate. For, I disagree because he makes so much money. You'd phase out of the passive loss rules. Well, he'd, but yeah, so the second part of that is what, be a real estate professional? Yeah, or, (laughs) yes, he would. But he's a trucker. I know he's not a real estate professional. I know, I know. So, and, and the, so but what? But I don't know if he's married or not. Oh. If he's married, 
and his his spouse could then be the real estate professional. You could write that off. Anyway, I guess the bottom line, Jay, is this is very difficult. About the best you can do is come up with business deductions against that five hundred thousand. And I bet you, legitimately, you probably couldn't come up with more than twenty-five to fifty grand of deductions. And then he could do a, what a retirement account. Yeah, that's another twenty-four. Correct. And that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, right. Sorry, Big Al failed on that. Yeah, I did. That was... That I'd, was I'd love to zero out taxes. Yeah, but here's, here's Big Al's advice. Buy a $10 million property <laughs> and tell your wife that you're not married to yet to be a real estate professional, <laughs> and then that would be good. Actually, in this example, he's going to have to buy about a $20 million property <laughs> to get a $500,000 deduction. Might be a little difficult. All right, that's it for us. We'll see you again next week. Show's called Your Money Award. And special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Daniel Crosby, for teaching us that the secret to investing is just needing to pee. Get The Behavioral Investor on Amazon and find links to Dr. Crosby on Twitter and LinkedIn in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com, along with all the links you need to subscribe to the podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, listen on YouTube, or on your favorite podcast app. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to sign up for your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Whew, gotta go, gotta pee. <laughs>